Did Putin hack the 2016 US election? Was communism ever achieved? And what can we learn from the collapse of the USSR? Today, on Ideas at the House, we're asking some big questions about Russia. I'm Edwina Throsby, and our selection of talks from Antidote Festival continues with award-winning journalist Arkadia Ostrovsky, who draws on the years he lived and worked in Russia to answer all these questions and more. He's with the ABC's Emeril Grichy. The Russia-Mikhail Gorbachev rift about 25 years ago as he bid farewell to the Soviet Union is largely unrecognisable today. He was paying tribute to what had been achieved when he said this, and it's worth recalling. Free elections have become a reality. Free press, freedom to worship, representative legislatures and a multi-party system have all become a reality. Human rights are being treated as the supreme principle and top priority. We're now living in a new world. An end has been put to the Cold War and to the arms race. We've opened ourselves up to the rest of the world, abandoned the practices of interfering in others' internal affairs and using troops outside this country. And we've been reciprocated with trust, solidarity and respect. We've paid with all our history and tragic experiences for these democratic achievements, and they're not to be abandoned, whatever the circumstances and whatever the pretexts. Last year, the invention of Russia won the UK's most prestigious award for political writing, the Orwell Prize for Books. Chair of Judges for the Prize, Lord William Waldegrave, compared Akadi's writing to George Orwell's novels 1984 and Animal Farm saying the invention of Russia was absolutely about the central themes that Orwell is most famous of all for, the importance of language and how he or she who controls the language controls the narrative. And although there are many strong and brave liberal voices in Russia, if you get control of social and traditional media, you've gone a long way to controlling the message. And that just about sums up the book well, but... For a little more meat on the bone, please help me in welcoming Arkady Ostrovsky. Thank you you very much. Thank you, Emma, for a very uh, generous and very informative introduction, actually, not in terms of me, but in terms of reading those wonderful words uh, of of Gorbachev. I was just, in fact, last week uh, reading and reviewing a book which I highly recommend by an American political scientist, William Taubman, uh, a new biography of Gorbachev, which ends, uh, you know, Gorbachev is obviously alive, and it ends with um, his recollection of his trip to Australia, uh, how important and and sort of heartening it was that the Australians uh, felt that he was one of the most important men of the 20th century, something like 75% of Australians felt that. It's incredibly exciting to be here in Sydney, my first time, and to be at the Sydney Opera House, the, the words that which Emma read by Gorbachev, which were spoken in, uh, on the 25th of December, 91, uh, as he resigned from his job as the president of the USSR, and with it resigned the country, is a reminder of the importance of words and narratives, which has been highlighted only too powerfully and sometimes disturbingly by recent events in America and, and in Europe, because a lot of it is about the power of ideas and the power of narrative and hijacking narratives. When I started writing this book, uh, <clears throat> which was um, 
roughly in 2010, 2011. It was a, meant to be a book just about Russia, its internal dynamics, and how did we get from that incredible statement that Gorbachev made to, to today where Russia is engaged effectively in a new Cold War with the West when it's battling the US elections, when America itself is having sort of a nervous breakdown over Russia. How did we get here? And as, as the book got published and um, as I'm speaking today, it suddenly become transparent to me that the processes that I've observed in Russia over the past uh, 20 years were not isolated from what's happening in the world, but in a way were sort of a precursor of uh, what, what we're seeing today and the similarities between some of the rhetoric that we hear from Donald Trump, uh, which sometimes almost verbatim repeats what Vladimir Putin had said in his, on his sort of best nationalist day, is, is very, very striking. The, the fact that the narratives uh, shape countries and shape history is obviously not new. Um, as Nietzsche wrote in Thus uh, Speaks Zarathustra, the world arose not around the, not about the inventors of, new noi <coughs> inventors of new noises, but around the inventors of new values. It revolves inaudibly. So the, idea, <coughs> the ideas and narratives have been central to Russia for a very long time. This year is the 100th anniversary, uh, the centenary of the Bolshevik Revolution, which was, in a way, all about uh, the power of the word and the idea, in, in fact, so strong that we live with its consequences uh, today. Uh, a very dangerous idea uh, indeed, probably one of the most dangerous ideas that's ever been formulated. It's the ability of humans, I think, to pay attention, more to pay attention to words than to reality that, in a way, swung uh, the Bolsheviks into power uh, in 1917. Ivan Pavlov, a Nobel Prize winning Russian physiologist, you know, the Pavlov dog, but also a, a great philosopher, spoke in, in Petrograd, um, now St. Petersburg, before that Leningrad, on the cold winter of 1918 when the country was torn by civil war just a few months after the revolution. And he blamed for what happened in Russia the Russian intelligentsia, the, the brain and the consciousness of the country, saying that it's one of the peculiarities of, of the Russians that we're mostly interested in words and have little concern for reality. The task of a mind is to comprehend reality accurately, and that's what we're not doing. And these words are just as, as, true, uh, as true today. The Soviet Union, uh, as it emerged uh, in the 20s and 30s uh, and throughout its history, basically, was sustained uh, by ideology. The attitude to words, to printed word in particular, uh, was almost sort of pseudo-religious. You know, not only the Bolsheviks actually adopted uh, a lot of Christian iconography and Christian ideas and holidays, they also inherited this sort of attitude to the word, the Bible, uh, the Old Testament, whatever you want to call it, but the, the main battles uh, were ideological ones, the, you know, the studies of the text, the arguments about the texts, uh, and those arguments went, uh, went on for, for the next 70 years, uh, subjecting the country to extraordinary hardship. The Soviet Union was sustained basically by two things, by words 
and by and ide ideology and, and lies and propaganda on the one hand and the fear of repression, well, first repression, then the fear of repression later. They work like an arch. The lies and propaganda supported a justified repression, and the repressions reinforced the lies and propaganda. These were the two main staples of the system. The repression and the fear of repression was eased uh, after Stalin's death in 1953, when the mass terror ended. And the lies and propaganda continued for much longer. And it was basically when Gorbachev came to power in, the, uh, in 1985 and started to open up the country to the flows of information, uh, started to open up the media, when the system which was control and you know he believed ultimately that that socialism was possible that socialism with a human face is is possible and that it can be achieved without uh, violence and without lies and it's when he removed that second pillar from underneath the system the the lies and propaganda that the system actually came crashing down burying him underneath so my view is that in fact, the importance, you know, there is a lot of argument about sort of why and how the Soviet Union collapsed. You know, the Chinese have been studying it uh, ever since, trying to learn lessons of sort of what not to do. But in fact, you know, the, the, there's a lot of argument that the Soviet Union collapsed because of the collapse in the oil price, because of the economy. I, my view is that the Soviet Union was born by the word and uh, was defeated by the word. Uh, that it basically didn't just run out of money, it ran out of words, it ran out of ideas, uh, and people stopped believing the Soviet propaganda. When the uh, Soviet Union was gone, and by the way, this, this sort of the power of, of, of propaganda and the need to speak the truth uh, and the, was, was formulated much earlier by Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who in 1973 wrote his, as on the day he was arrested for publishing Gulag Archipelago in the West, when he appealed to the Russian nation saying, you know, live not by the lies. Uh, and he wrote that in our country, the daily lies is not the whim of corrupt nature, but a mode of existence, a vital link holding everything together. So but when that link was removed, the, the system came down. The end of the country uh, in 91 was also the end of the language and the, the end of, of narrative. But a new narrative uh, emerged almost immediately, the one where Russia was supposed to become immediately a normal country. You will remember those uh, sort of high hopes of the 80s when everybody thought, okay, this is the end of the Cold War, Russian people will be now liberated from excessive control of the state uh, of repression of the lies, and they will just join the normal world. And this, wor this word normal was, nobody knew what really normal was, but the word normal was the dominant one uh, in the Russian narrative. And a newspaper which could have set the mode for Russia in the 1990s was called Kommersant. Uh, it was a business newspaper. Uh, started by a man called Vladimir Yakovlev, who was the son of all, one of the people who, uh, was the, who championed Perestroika. Uh, and it's kind of modeled itself on the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal uh, of this world. And, but this newspaper, which actually aimed to 
uh, throwaway ideology, uh, which was uh, rapidly sort of anti-Soviet and anti-fathers uh, newspaper, itself, itself was quite ideological. On its masthead, it said, uh, this newspaper didn't come out uh, from 1917 to 1991. It was established in 1909, didn't come out from 1917 to 1991 for reasons outside editorial control. <laughs> and basically, it's, it was sort of, it was a very strange newspaper. It was, it was the Onion meet the New York Times. And it, it sort of engaged in this, um, it's sort of the language it used, it, it basically was constant piss take on the sort of high Soviet language. It was a sort of, it was a satire, but presented as real news. Imagine, imagine that the Onion is actually the mainstream newspaper, that there is no other mainstream newspaper. It was, it was a bit like that. Uh, the idea behind it was that everything that happened between 1917 and 1991 uh, is, is irrelevant. That this period of history can be simply cut out and thrown away, and we can start where we left in this notional, um, I don't know, 1915 or 19, uh, year 1913, 1914, 1915, when Russia was fast developing as a capitalist country. That the 70 years of history can be simply cut out and omitted. And that was actually, it picked from that idea that you know, Russia could just very quickly become a normal country. The, the problem was that, of course, you, you, you couldn't do that, and that the, the reality which Kommersant uh, and later another, uh, uh, Russia's first television channel, NTV, uh, were presenting of Russia as a, uh, a sort of a, a normal business country, uh, a normal ca capitalist country, was as much of an invention as, as the Bolshevik one. You know, Russia was suffering from a, uh, a sort of economic decline, there were wars breaking on the fringes of the empire, and yet this, this newspaper presented Russian life as if, like, you know, as if it was a, a sort of hundreds of years of tradition of, of British mowing lawns and, and building banks and, and, and institutions. And one of the critics who, one of the people who worked in the newspaper said, well, it doesn't matter that we lie, what matters is we lie beautifully. And so Russia lived with this idea of becoming, sort of pretending to become a normal country, ignoring, again, ignoring reality for much of the, of the 1990s. So it was very little surprise that by the end of the 90s, that idea of Russia becoming a normal civilized country was uh, suffering from contact with reality, from, you know, confrontation with reality. 98, Russia had uh, a big financial crisis, a financial meltdown. In 99, America and, and NATO forces started bombing Yugosla former Yugoslavia, which was also sort of a breaking point in Russia's um, romance uh, with the West. And Russia turned, and Russian ideologists have turned against America, blaming it for everything that went wrong inside Russia itself. And I do believe that that was one of the most important sort of breaking points. So with the idea of pro, kind of, of a Western normal country discredited by the financial crisis and by worsening of the relationship with, with America and with the West, Russia was sort of left in an ideological vacuum. Uh, suddenly people didn't know what to believe. They, they didn't know what Russia was about. Yeltsin 
who was the president of Russia at the time, desperately searched for a national idea, set up special committees uh, for sort of formulating a national idea. And Kommersant, that business newspaper, again sneered at him and saying, well, national idea is just a luxury. We don't need it. We can just um, uh, live, uh, live, as, live with, as we do. But the truth is that people do need ideas, and they do need to understand what, what it's for, particularly in a sort of idea-centric country like Russia. And two interesting, you know, two ideas emerged in, uh, in the late 90s. And they were represented by, or sort of best captured by two artworks. One was a band, a rock band called Leningrad. I wanted actually to play a song, but we couldn't stream the, the YouTube video. But I uh, very much recommend watching it because it does give a very good sense of what Russia is is today. Uh, the band uh, called Leningrad, led by a man called Sergei Shnurov, who studied philosophy and theology and then turned into this sort of infant rebel. Uh, his songs were filled with obscenities. Uh, and he was a genuine, you know, he was a Russian nihilist, very much in the tradition that described by uh, Dostoevsky in his novel, uh, The Devils. And basically, Shnurov's message was that nothing matters. There is no truth. People only care about uh, sort of hedonistic pleasures. It's all about sex, drinking, swearing, uh, to hell uh, with ideology, to hell with ideas, to hell with everything. It was a sort of, a, you know, a, uh, a strong strait of, um, of, of that nihilism. And pretending that, in fact, there were no ideas uh, was also a lie because an idea started to emerge around the same time, and it was an old nationalist idea. And that was captured by another character who, who uh, became one of the most popular in Russian culture and Russian film, a man called Daniela, and he was a character from a film, uh, the first post-Soviet blockbuster called Brat, or Brother. And he was a strong, uh, handsome young guy who fought uh, in the war in uh, Chechnya in the 1990s and, become, and, and comes back to criminalize St. Petersburg to clear it of, uh, of the Chechen uh, scum, uh, as he calls them, uh, sort of totally politically uh, incorrect, but uh, very endearing to, to the Russian public. And so the combination of this, nothing matters, it's all about money, let's enjoy life, and the Russians are special, you know, we stand for the truth, became this very weird combination on which Putinism as an ideology is, is, is based. In the sequence of that film, Brat, Brat 2, Brother 2, uh, the main character climbs, he goes to, um, to New York uh, to settle scores with an American uh, businessman who is responsible for the death of, of his best friend back in Russia. The businessman is sort of engaged, again, sort of dubs and drugs and uh, violent sacks and, and all that, uh, sort of a nasty figure. So Daniela climbs uh, the fire escape of a skyscraper, bursts, you know, shoots his way into his office, sits down in front of this businessman and says, you American, tell me, um, you think power is in money, don't you? Well, I think power is in truth. Whoever's got truth is more powerful. 
And suddenly there was this idea formulated and underneath it basically was, and the reason, you know, we the Russians, this character is more powerful because he's got the truth. But the reason he's got the truth is that he's Russian. You don't need any national idea. We are better because we are. You know, the Russians are more moral because they got the truth. It actually made no sense. It, 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 sort of the, it's, it was like, a bit like Lenin, Leninist idea that, that the teaching of Marx is eternal because it's true, and it's true because it's eternal. But it was, it was the statement which suddenly clicked with the country. And the Kremlin ideologists recognized both this sort of hedonism of particularly Russian uh, sort of creative classes, the intelligen intelligentsia, which, which felt politics is something that is almost embarrassing to talk about. I mean, you know, we've got IKEA now, we've got coffee shops, we can travel abroad. Who cares about politics? Who cares? You know, if Putin wants to deal with this dark mass of Russian people living east of Moscow or outside the circular road, well, you know, he's welcome to it. On the one hand, and this sort of building genuine uh, nationalism, which was bordering on fascism, effectively, it was the first expression uh, of Russian fascism, which will then come to haunt the country uh, 15 years later uh, when Russia started a war in, in Ukraine. And the characters like that guy from the film would go and fight in the east of Ukraine, led to it again by the Russian narrative and by the Russian propaganda. So this is what, you know, if one tried to explain what so it sustains uh, Putin. Uh, it's not repression. Uh, repression is, is, is targeted. It's selective. It would be wrong to, to compare him to, to Stalin. I mean, he's an authoritarian leader, but he is not a bloodthirsty tyrant. Putin continues to do what he does and is able to do what he does because he's got, he's got the idea. He's got the narrative. And as I said, this narrative consists of these two, by the looks of it, contradictory and, ex and you know, self-exclusive, self-canceling uh, concepts of, of nationalism uh, and, and nihilism. I became very aware, I mean, as I was writing the book, I was, I was finishing it, and uh, suddenly the, uh, and I said, the, the, the book was about the how the narrative shaped the country, when suddenly the life and the events were bursting into the book, which I could never imagine and were never meant when I, when I started it. And the events were uh, the annexation of, uh, first the annexation of Crimea, uh, and then the war in Ukraine, and then the death uh, and the murder of, um, of Boris Nemtsov, a liberal Russian politician who was also a uh, a good friend. I was in Kyiv uh, in Ukraine the day before uh, the Russian forces seized the airports and administrative buildings in Crimea. Obviously, very few people saw it coming. I remember on the day when it happened, or 24 hours before it happened, rather, turning on a Russian television channel, which was broadcasting also into Ukraine, uh, and watching the news, which basically consisted of, of two uh, parts. It wasn't even news. It was, it was a broadcast which was clearly pre-prepared, and there were two big blocks. One was a, uh, a trip 
that was made by the Speaker of Russian Parliament to Israel, in which they talked about the role which the Ukrainians played in the Holocaust. And by that time, Russian media, Russian television, already for quite a long time, was describing the events that taking place in Kyiv and Maidan, as, you know, in the Maidan Revolution, as uh, the fascists uh, coming to power in Ukraine, sort of uh, against uh, the will of the Russian-speaking population. So obviously, this is sort of this this block of um, news, this item. Uh, about the, getting the Israelis to talk about the responsibility of Ukrainians had immediate relevance. The second was uh, a strange, seems to have come out of nowhere, a story about how Nikita Khrushchev, the man who followed uh, Stalin in the role of the uh, general secretary of the Communist Party, passed on Crimea uh, to Ukraine. And now that was a massive mistake. And I was watching that news that, having finished watching the news, I called the travel agent and booked my ticket to Crimea because I realized something is about to happen, and indeed it did. Uh, but everything that happened in Ukraine uh, since then was led very much by television. In the same way as the Russian Winter Olympics uh, in, in the previous few months uh, of that year were staged for the benefits of the country, I was very struck. I was actually at the uh, Sochi, uh, in the Sochi Winter Olympics opening, watching it watching it live and suddenly realizing I'm just kind of a prompt in, the, in this big stadium, but actually the event, like all such events, is staged for the benefit, benefit of the television cameras. But it was not just that event that got staged. Then the, Russia's, the Kremlin went further and staged the whole war for the benefit of the cameras. Silvia Berlusconi, one of Putin's best friends, uh, once said that what didn't happen, uh, what was not shown on television didn't happen in reality. Well, Putin went further and said, actually, what's shown on television will happen in reality. <laughs> and so the reality was quite literally set by the television. As I was in Crimea, I saw people outside the hotel where I was stay staying, celebrating, sort of waving flags, uh, singing songs, uh, old Soviet songs. And I went to ask them, I said, so what, what, what's the celebration? They said, well, don't you know? You know it's a liberation. I said, liberation from, from what? From, from whom? I said, well, you know, it's liberation from the fascists. I said, okay, um, you know, they were coming to kill us and the Russian army liberated us. I said, fine, wh wh where are the fascists? I said, well, haven't you watched television? <laughs> but, it, you know, it's, it, is, it was sort of, it was absurd, but the problem was that they, these sort of events and this sort of coverage that Russian television provided did lead then to real bloodshed. It was that television coverage that led to the, ultimately uh, the war that unfolded in Eastern Ukraine and the bringing down of MH17 over Eastern Ukraine in, in 2014. So that was a very good reminder of what words actually can do and how dangerous dangerous they are if, if used in the way that they had been. And then watching things, you know, watching Donald Trump coming to power, talking about America first, resurgent America, uh, was just such a good, again, it, it, it just rang so familiar uh, to me. I, I just felt I've, I've heard it all before. 
and there was nothing in a way sort of unique about uh, what happened in Russia, that, this, that the no country is, is safe uh, from that kind of manipulation. Now, it's an interesting question why this happened. You know, the Soviets, as, as, as I said at the beginning, had engaged in their propaganda for, for a very long time, and not just inside the country, but also outside the country. The KGB had a special department called the Department of Active Measures that was planting disinformation in the West, which was interfering in the U.S. elections, which was inventing stories, which was um, planting stories about AIDS and HIV being uh, invented by CIA, etc. None of those actually worked. And ultimately, they didn't work inside the country as well. And what, what killed the Soviet propaganda was the fact that actually nobody inside the country believed it. Because there was a very simple reality check uh, available to anybody. When they told Russian people on television that uh, the Soviet economy is far more advanced and advantageous to them than capitalism, and then you went to the shop and saw empty shelves, you knew that it was a lie. You know, when every Christmas we were bombarded, uh, as I grew up in Russia, we were bombarded with broadcasts about how terrible and, um, and corrupt the West is, and all we wanted to get is the glimpse of that Western life, which they showed, you know, in those broadcasts. And I even remember the phrase, it always went in the same way, you know, the, the streets of Paris or London or New York, um, whichever city they picked in the... Uh, in those broadcasts are beautifully decorated, but the faces of, of the Parisians and Londoners and New Yorkers are gloomy. And then they show the faces of the New Yorkers and say, God, we just want, you know, to get a glimpse of that life. So there was a reality check, uh, and nobody believed propaganda. The, the problem with uh, today's world, both in Russia and in America, and we can then talk uh, maybe a little more about uh, <clears throat> why things that happened in Russia are now being repeated um, elsewhere. But the problem is that people want to believe propaganda. You can't just, you know, the reason propaganda works is not because the television got more sleek, although it has become more sleek. It's not just because the executives who are putting all, all those shows on, on Russian television have been trained as, as film producers. Uh, although they have been trained as film pr producers. But the main reason propaganda works is because people want to believe it. Uh, as Bertolt Brecht, a uh, German playwright, said after the war, the Germans were deceived because Germans wanted to be deceived. Uh, the Russians were deceived by the war in Ukraine and the annexation of Crimea, which boosted Putin's popularity and their sense of self-worth of being noble, of saving people, because they wanted to believe it. Uh, the reason people voted for Donald Trump, I, I think, is not uh, that the Americans are stupid or the Americans don't know uh, that you can't bring the economy back to uh, industrial growth of the 1950s. It's because they want to believe in something, and, and what Trump is telling them is, is actually very comforting. And in a way, this is one of the strange results uh, of the way in which the, end, the Cold War ended, and that brings us sort of back to, to, to Gorbachev's age of the 1980s. Because when communism collapsed uh, and the Soviet Union with it, there was this sense uh, in the West uh, of, of triumph, uh, of, of genuine victory, and it was a victory. 
The question is, what was it the victory of? Um, reading some of the statements that were made by uh, the so-called realists in the government of uh, George Bush Sr. Um, in the late 80s is, is very striking today because uh, they have no bearings on reality that was unfolding in Russia at the time. Uh, General Scorecroft, who was the national security advisor, was saying that Gorbachev's reforms made him more dangerous than his predecessors, that Russia and the Soviet Union were trying to smother us with their kindness, to lure us into disarmament. Uh, George Bush himself famously said uh, on 25th of, uh, after 25th of December, Gorbachev's speech in 91, that by grace of God we won the Cold War. And the combination of the words won and war immediately triggered the image of a, of a military of a military victory. And it has been, uh, it sort of not only was uh, untrue because it wasn't the military force, it wasn't the, um, the advantages that, that the West had over Russia militarily, it was the fact that the life and the values were, uh, were more advantageous in the West than they were in the Soviet Union. That the, and in a way, Gorbachev came, you know, and started acting because he wanted to improve the lives uh, of ordinary Russians, and he believed the values. It's a different matter how uh, he was allowed to survive in, in the system which did everything in its power to suppress those values. But it was the power of the values, again, the power of ideas, dignity, and human rights that won the Cold War. It was common sense that won the Cold War, not the, the missiles. But this sense of triumph has, on the one hand, led, I think, America to believe in, in the fact that military power can be used to advance democracy, um, which in the, in the end led it to the war in Iraq uh, in, in 2003, an event which I think was, uh, had a huge importance in Donald Trump coming to power. Uh, it also persuaded uh, Western liberals that there was nothing to fight for anymore. And the Cold War had been won, the history is over that now we can all engage in talking about trade deals and talk about refrigerators and washing machines. Um, there was this famous essay um, by Francis Fukuyama, The End of History, in which actually everybody remembers for his sort of main thesis that the history is over, but in fact, the ending of that essay is, is in itself is very interesting because Fukuyama says, yes, everything I argued in this original essay is, is, is probably true. There's only one thing which bothers me, is life is going to become very boring. Um, it's sort of, you know, wh where's the struggles? You know, it's this famous um, line from, from the, one of the Bond movies where Ju Judy Dench, Am, says, God, I miss the Cold War. <laughs> um, but it actually turned out to be quite prophetic words because people did miss the Cold War in a sense that it gave them purpose, that Cold War remarkably has been very important for Western liberalism, for sustaining it, because again, it gave the West the purpose. Uh, Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan could be at the same time uh, patriots or nationalists, if you like, and they had to be liberals because they were standing up to illiberal communist regime. And I think it was after the end of the Soviet Union that the two narratives, the one of nationalism and one of liberalism, drifted apart. And now we have nationalists of a very 
uh, of a very different kind. Uh, it also left Russia without a sense of purpose. Um, uh, you know, and, <clears throat> and everything that Putin has done since uh, has been about sort of providing, uh, providing that purpose, you know, providing the sense of resurgence and, and national pride. Uh, it was the failure of the liberal elites, both in the West um, and in, in Russia, that led to emergence of people like Putin and Trump. They were not, you know, they were not aliens. Uh, there was no coup. There was no coup in Russia after 91. There was no counter-revolution. There was no one single event that overturned everything that Gorbachev proclaimed in, uh, in the speech that Emma read out. Um, Trump is not an alien. They are the consequences of, of the mistakes that have been uh, made and the uh, overconfidence that we had in the liberal values in the sense that we didn't have to fight for them. And in that sense, we've been very bad students of, um, of George Orwell. Uh, because in uh, 1940, in his review, uh, strangely, uh, of Mein Kampf, uh, which was published in Britain in that year, um, he wrote, it's a very short review, but it actually explains a lot about the world in which we live. And I can't help, I mean, just citing those words. Hitler has grasped the falsity of the hedonistic attitude to life. Nearly all Western thought since the last war, certainly all progressive thought, has assumed tacitly that human beings desire nothing beyond ease, security, and avoidance of pain. The socialist who finds his children playing with soldiers is usually upset, but he is never able to think of a substitute for the tin soldiers. Tin pacifists somehow won't do. <laughs> Hitler knows that human beings don't only want comfort, safety, short walking hours, hygiene, birth control, and in general common sense. They also, at least intermittently, want struggle, self-sacrifice, not to mention drums, flags, and loyalty parades. However they may be as economic theories, fascism and Nazism are psychologically far sounder than any hedonistic conception of life. The same is probably true for Stalin's militarized version of socialism. Uh, obviously Trump is, uh, you know, and Putin are not um, Hitler and Stalin. God, God forbid that, that comparison, that would be disrespectful to the, to the victims of, of both Stalinism and fascism. Uh, but then we live in a different world. We live in a postmodernist world where virtual reality uh, can be uh, as powerful as, as reality itself, where the media events become the life events. So it's the exploitation of the exploitation of the media, the message, the ability to stage wars on uh, television, to conduct them through Twitter feeds that now substitute for, um, for big uh, sacrifices of life. The, the problem with that is that eventually, uh, as we've seen uh, in Russia in particular, in, in, in Crimea, but in the whole of Russian history, words can indeed, and this sort of virtual reality can indeed, uh, and in, in massive uh, loss of life. So if we were to to basically defend what um, liberals uh, 
believe in, we have to start from ourselves. We have to start thinking about ideas and narratives again to get that across, because we're in a competition, uh, and we can't assume uh, that it is human instinct to embrace the liberal values, that somehow liberalism is the natural order. It's not natural. There is nothing natural about it. Uh, what's natural is, is what Orwell described. Uh, and it has to be a constant fight, and the history is, in that sense, is, is very far from over. Um, so I think I'll, I'll end here. I'm sorry I've spoken probably far too long, um, but it would be great to have a, you know, questions and discussion or whatever. Thank you very much, Akadi. And I will ask um, you all, I'm sure you've got tons of questions. Uh, there's a microphone over there where the number one is and, and one over here where uh, the number two is. If you can line up at the, um, at the microphones with your questions, we'll, uh, we'll have a bit of time to get through them. I'll kick off uh, with, a, I guess, possibly the most obvious one, and that is I, I, I'm keen to know why you think Putin uh, hacked into the U.S. election? What, 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 what was what was the end game there? Um, I don't think there is an end game um, in anything he does. I don't think he's a man of great strategic thinking. I think the end game was the process itself. The process more, you know, mattered more than the than the result, it was to, I don't think that, you know, the truth is that actually Trump as president of America is a lot less advantageous to Russia and to Putin than not Obama only, was or Hillary Clinton would have been. In that with Obama, you had a known quantity and you had a very easy target for anti-Americanism, which has become the main sort of ideology of uh, one of the staples of Putinism. You could attack him in the safe knowledge that he will never escalate because he is a grown-up or because he is weak, as Putin <laughs> thinks. But with Trump, you can't be sure of that, you know, right? You know, you, you, you think, okay, well, Putin always plays this kind of unpredictable escalation dominance, come here, I'll, you know, hit you, or else, you know, let's negotiate and here is my gun. But can you really be sure that Trump is not going to give an order to shoot down Russian jets as they buzz American warships? I'm not sure, and neither is Putin. So in that sense, actually, Trump is not that great for, for Putin at all. And I think had Putin known that Trump would win, I'm not sure he would have done very much. I think he, he supported him, believing that he could never win and that he would just undermine the whole process, there would be these revelations, there will be mass, there will be chaos. Look at your wonderful, bloody liberal democracy. You know, this is how it works, you know, it's, nothing is true, they're just the same. You know, Putin's main message is everybody is the same, as hypocritical, as cynical, it's just the Americans hide it better. And so I think he was literally stunned by, by Trump's victory because he believes in conspiracies. I mean, what conspiracy was that that he's kind of missed on? Um, so the idea was to undermine American institutions. The idea was to undermine the very procedure of elections, uh, not to get Trump actually elected. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's dangerous not to, you know, in terms of geopolitics, but it's dangerous to 
the Democrats and to the liberal idea in America to blame the emergence of Trump on, on Russia. Of course, Putin interfered, um, but that's not why Trump won. Do we have some questions? Very interesting. You um, put the question, why Putin hacked into... First of all, if there was no reason, and if there is no proof, how can you say that he hacked into the election? No reason and no proof. He well, hacked. We, we do have the proof. Uh, Where? You know, the, the American... Uh, you know, there have been there several investigations... Uh, we do know that uh, this were uh, Russian hackers, and at some point we have to believe, believe. Uh, the investigations that, uh, that are going. What's more, Putin effectively admitted it. When? You know, Putin, Never in his interview... Hold on. <laughs> well, hang on a second. You know, let's talk about facts, OK? Um, so uh, when Putin was asked on his, in his interview with Bloomberg Television by my, actually, former editor, John Micklethwaite, you know, about Russia's interference. Uh, he said, yeah, Russian interference, whatever. Whoever, you know, leaked emails, said, well, look, why are you interested in who leaked those emails or who hacked in the computers? Aren't you interested in the, in the content of those emails? That's another point. Uh, but, you know, the fact that, you know, the Russians, uh, as, as I said, in, uh, the Russians have been doing this for many, many years. And all you have to do is uh, to watch Russian television uh, and its rooting for, for Trump uh, and to watch Russia Today in English language uh, to, uh, to see uh, that there, there was a massive propaganda campaign. There is still a massive propaganda campaign, although uh, the Russians have been very taken aback now by, um, by, Trump, uh, by Trump's inability uh, thank God, to overrun American uh, institutions. So the major proof is that the Russian television and uh, Zhirinovsky... Sorry. And Zhirinovsky Sorry. were drinking uh, uh, champagne. Thank you. We've got, we've got a number of others, so I'll take one from over here. Thank you, Arkady, for addressing very important issues of ideological transformations of Russia. My name is Elena Zaborzova, and I've got two questions, if possible. First one, when you spoke about uh, uh, collapse of the USSR, you referred to the notion as to end of the communism. Simultaneously, you've highlighted importance of using uh, uh, precise language and narratives. How correct is this notion, uh, communism? Uh, was communism ever achieved in, in the former USSR? I'm Australian now, but I was born in the USSR, and as far as I remember, we, we were always aiming to achieve communism. Communism was, at least from Soviet perspective, it was never achieved yet. There was a great goal to achieve communism. So that's, that's the first question. Shall I...? So, so, so the question... Was, was sure. communism ever achieved? No, of course communism was never achieved. I mean, you, you know, utopia, you know, translating you know, the place that never is. I mean, there is no such place. Um, no, communism was never achieved, uh, obviously, and couldn't be achieved, like no utopia uh, can be achieved, except that you can s sacrifice millions of lives, as the Soviets had done in the process of, of trying to achieve that utopia. Um, there is a different and interesting question, uh, which I've been thinking a lot about recently, particularly in relationship to 
to Gorbachev. Who was he? What made Gorbachev a man he was? Was he a secret dissident? He wasn't. Was he a fool who just didn't foresee the consequences of his actions? No, he wasn't. He was in many ways an ideal Soviet man, if you think about it. Hardworking, um, rejecting bourgeois values of private ownership, wanting to improve the life of his people, uh, a man who started his life as, as combined harvest, you know, a, a operator of a combined harvester, uh, sort of ideal pedigree. But it was, in fact, his sensibilities and reflexes that underneath this sort of hackneyed Soviet newspeak stayed normal. And that was the extraordinary thing. But it took a Soviet man, somebody who actually believed that socialism could be achieved uh, in the way that the Czech, Czechoslovakia attempted in 1968, uh, and the crushing of those reforms by the Soviet tanks in 1968 didn't turn them away from the idea of socialism, but actually the crushing of the Prague Spring only reinforced the desire to try it out again, which is what he did in 1986. They uh, it's this kind of strange attitude to history that history can be rewound like a tape. You can go back in time. Uh, you know, Russia, you know, history, you know, this attitude to history is sort of a, tr a railway track. You can go backwards and forwards, and if we've arrived in the wrong destination, let's go back to that previous point and take a different fork, as if those 18, 20 years didn't, didn't happen. But it was his desire to build socialism in a way, to reinforce it. I mean, the perestroika started under the slogans, back to principles of Lenin. That led him to dismantle the Soviet Union. That's the paradox um, of, of the belief in, in socialism. Uh, I can only let you have one question, I'm sorry, because there's so many to get through, we're running out of time. Thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. Um, my question is just, you spoke earlier about the, the Sochi Winter Olympics. I remember at that time I was in Shanghai and I was astounded by the amount of coverage that that got on uh, Chinese state media. Um, so my question is in relation to that. Um, given that we've sort of seen a new alliance or a loose alliance emerge between China and Russia, are we sort of seeing an alignment of values against the West, or is this sort of, what, what do you think the end game is of that alliance? Is it a true alliance? That's an excellent question, because yeah, no, this is a Arkady very, very was just telling question. me that's where he's off to next, to explore that. That's a very, very interesting question. Um, it's true that on the surface of it, you know, this is a, you know, Russia never had better relationship with China uh, over the past decades. Uh, Xi Jinping has been to Moscow uh, in his years in power, more than any other capital of the world. Uh, China is now the main creditor after Russian uh, firms and, and state enterprises have been put on sanctions lists. Ru uh, China is one of the main providers of capital in Russia. Russia now sells military technology to China that it had never sold them before, including uh, S-400 uh, anti-missile defense system. But this is a very, very unequal relationship. And the Chinese, I think, are very, very aware of that. 
in a way, the Chinese have benefited from the global order much more than the Russians have. And the Chinese are in no hurry to throw uh, the, the rule book away. Uh, the <clears throat> there is certain uh, affinity between Putin and Xi Jinping, uh, which we've seen in their sort of personal affinity. But underneath, I think the Chinese understand that Russia is ex extremely weak. Uh, if you look at the private investment of, of Chinese firms in Russia, it's, it's negligible. Uh, China's trade with Russia is a fraction of, of China's trade with America. Uh, I think the Chinese, my sense, my takeaway from, from being in China last year, uh, and I'm going to, to Japan after Sydney to, to talk to, to Japanese about it, but my sense is the Chinese, having observed what uh, nuisance and what headache Russia can be for the West, uh, have learned to placate it through money uh, by paying basically to Putin's cronies uh, very often. But in, in terms of sort of deep business, there is very, very little. And when you ask Chinese businessmen, which is sort of the Russians get very upset, saying, why are you not investing in Russia? I said, well, why do you think? Why do you think that the Chinese businessmen would invest in Russia when the Americans, the Brits, the Germans, the Australians don't? We don't, you know, they don't invest for the same reasons, the weakness of property rights, the lack of rules. In that sense, you know, Chinese businesses are driven by the same uh, logic as, as anybody else. Um, so I think, and also for Russia, you know, th there is a lot of distrust uh, between Russia and, and China, uh, traditionally. And the Russians have treated Chinese with, with a lot of contempt, and as uh, one of the Russian, uh, very senior Russian diplomats said to me, we would like to have Chinese money without the Chinese. <laughs> uh, well, uh, you, you here in Australia know uh, a lot more about how, how, you know, how it works. You, you, you obviously can't, that, can't have that. But, so there, there is a lot of mistrust. Uh, there, is a lot of, um, there is a lot of public you know, political talk between the two leaders. Uh, the Chinese have now even allowed Russian television. You know, Putin not only provides S-400s to China, he is now providing his most uh, valuable weapon at all, his television to China. So the Russian television is going to broadcast in China. Now the only f foreign, a foreign channel, the Russian Channel 1. Um, but uh, I don't think that, uh, you know, if you look at the deeper interest of China and Russia, that they are allied at all. Uh, if you look at where the Russian officials send their children, they don't send them to universities in China. Uh, they don't buy houses in Shanghai. Uh, they buy property in Sydney, in London, in New York, and send their kids to British public school or to British private schools. So, uh, and the behaviour of the elite in that sense is is very telling. So I don't think there is uh, there is a really deep. Um, synergy between or sort of deep alliance and the Chinese go out of their way to, to stress that this is no strategic alliance uh, between Russia and China precisely because it's not based on values, uh, because it's based on ideologies and, and the interests of the elites which are very temperamental. Uh, so it's, it's the lack of values ultimately uh, that uh, will 
undermine, I think, that relationship. I'm so sorry we're out of time, so I can't um, take any more questions, but uh, Cardi's going to be out doing some book signings. You'll get an opportunity to speak to him there. I'm uh, honoured enough to be able to be speaking to Akadi on Late Line on Tuesday night. So if you have a burning question you'd like me to ask him on air, why don't you tweet me? In the meantime, can you help me in thanking Akadi Ostrovsky? That was Arkady Ostrovsky talking to Emma Alberici about the invention of Russia. And if you like this talk, make sure you subscribe to Ideas at the House from wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, a visit from our friends at The Onion, purveyors of real and fake news.